6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck continues his teaching on the book of 1 Thessalonians, chapter 5. Let's take a look at a few verses here. Chapter 13 of Isaiah. Behold, the day of the Lord cometh cruel, both with wrath and fierce anger, to lay the land desolate, and he shall destroy the sinners thereof out of it. For the stars of heaven and the constellations thereof shall not give their light. The sun shall be darkened and is going forth, and the moon shall not cause her light to shine. And I will punish the world for their evil, and the wicked for their iniquity, and I will cause the arrogancy of the proud to cease and will lay low the haughtiness of the terrible. And skipping down another verse, Therefore I will shake the heavens, and the earth shall remove out of her place. Wow! In the wrath of the Lord of hosts, and in the day of his fierce anger. Wow! The earth shall remove out of her place. Did you know, you know, our standard weapon in our military arsenal is a four megaton warhead. But the Russians have built just a couple of 25 megaton warheads. And I remember participating in a study with GE Valley Forge back many years ago, but they did, did, did study that that's, that's, a, that's a warhead that's too big to be used for anything. In fact, if you take a, a few number of those and detonate them at one time, you would alter the orbit of the Earth. It's a very impractical kind of weapon. It's not, it's not clear what you'd use it for. But interesting to get that perspective here. The day of the Lord, called the day of wrath in Isaiah, but also alluded to in Joel 2 and Amos 5 and Zephaniah 1 and 2 and Revelation 6, a whole fistful of it there. The time of Jacob's trouble is the label that Jeremiah uses of it in Jeremiah 30 verse 7. Matthew, in the, in the Olivet Discourse, Jesus points out that all inhabitants of the land will tremble. But we do know that there is a church that is kept from the hour. In the Church of Philadelphia, in uh, Revelation chapter uh, 3, verse 10. Not only kept from what's happening, kept from the very time of what's happening. The word hour is very important there. Kept from the time. And of course, the result of the uncertainty for the unprepared, this could be contrasted with Noah and the flood of Noah. Also with Lot, out of Sodom and Gomorrah. There's a number of biblical examples that point to that. Let's continue here in Matthew 24, just to pick up that quote. For then shall be great tribulation. Jesus himself labels the period that way. Such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time, nor ever shall be. And except those days should be shortened. There should no flesh be saved, but for the elect's sake those days shall be shortened. You know, it's interesting. We live in a day where the technology is now available. If we were reading this, say, during the Civil War, 1860, say, we can't imagine the world wiping itself out with muskets and bayonets. Do a lot of damage, as we did then, but not, you wouldn't see the world wiping itself out with that weapons technology. But the reality today is that there's more than enough inventory of weapons that run the risk of wiping out the entire planet Earth. Except those days should be shortened, there should no flesh be saved. Here 
all the children of the light and children of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. He's just underscoring this division. He comes as a thief of the night to the children of night, the children of darkness, not to us. He doesn't catch us by surprise is the idea here. Not, we are not of the night nor of darkness. This is called a chiasmus. It's like a rhetorical reversal. Light, day, night, darkness. And Paul indulges in that structure frequently in Romans 10, 1 Corinthians 4, and 2 Corinthians 6, elsewhere. See, you and I are transplanted into the kingdom of the Son of God's love. So we're not even in, the, we're not in that group. There's no twilight zone here. You're either in one or the other. You're either in the night or the day, if you will. Therefore, Paul continued, Therefore, let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. See, that's the opposite of sleep, being awake and watch. And uh, don't be indifferent to the spiritual realities. See, all true prophetic teaching has an application. This is called the doctrine of eminence that could happen any moment. The eminence of his return is an impelling motive to be living for him every moment of every day. He should be an overwhelming priority on everything we do, everything on our schedule. Some people carry a little sign over the desk, perhaps today. Just a reminder that it might be today. As we go about our affairs, we can't help but sort of just presume that tomorrow is like yesterday. Next month like last month. Next year like last year. And yet, when we look around life, we begin to realize, no, it's not linear. There are non-linearities. There are things that disrupt, that we all you know, extrapolate linearly, but we live in a non-linear world. Weather-wise, financially, health-wise, and so forth. You need to be recognized the ultimate non-linearity is coming soon. Eminence. It demands morally and spiritually wakeful activity. Being on the alert against the assaults of sin and unrighteousness. And that's a moment-by-moment war that you and I are in. His return is one of the chief objects of Christian watchfulness. We should be watching for lots of different things, but that's the paramount one. For they that sleep, sleep in the night, and they that be drunken are drunken in the night. See, the children of the night are contrasted with children of the day. Not intoxicated by the stimulus of this world. Glamour, pleasures, and appearances, and so forth. But let us, who are of the day, be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, and the hope of salvation. Us, who are the day. See, all the way through this letter, be conscious of those two groups, because what he says to one doesn't apply to the other. And that coin has two sides. We are contrasted with those of the night. And he makes an allusion here that's borrowed from the armor of God in Ephesians 6, if you will. See, we're not only a watchman, we're a warrior. We're not a spectator on the sidelines watching. We're in the fray here, whether we like it or not. Like a soldier guarding himself against a surprise attack, as the idiom he's using here. The breastplate, that protected the heart. Where's your heart? Get into discussion with people, what's the most important stewardship? Is it your career, or is it your family? There's one that's more important than either of those. Stewardship of your heart. Where's your heart? Is it on God? Anything that distracts you from that is idol worship. Whew, that's pretty rough. What's faith? The inner attitude. Love. He's speaking here of the outward expression of that. The helmet. 
That's a crown around the head, in a sense. It invited special attack of the enemy if you had a helmet. And you can tell about the people who aren't wearing their helmets by the bandages. Right? Hope of salvation. That's the antithesis of the wrath of the next verse. But these are just a few listed. There are seven elements of the armor of God listed in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 to 18, or 17. And I encourage you to refresh yourself on exactly what they are and realize that Paul admonishes you to have the whole armor, not just a few favorite pieces, the whole armor for your own welfare. Again, we see a triad here, both faith, hope, and love, intrinsic in Paul's writings. For God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. God has what? Not appointed us to wrath. There are many people, very sincere Bible students, that suspect that the church will go through the Great Tribulation. There's a number of rebuttals to that, but this is one of the verses that you might want to remember. Because the Great Tribulation is a time of, you know, Isaiah calls it the time of the wrath of God. God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. He contrasts two different situations here. Those that are appointed to wrath and those that are, uh, obtain salvation. God has not appointed us to wrath. And if you're in the church, you'll be protected from that. And that's exactly what's expressed so many ways. But again, I'll point to Revelation 3.10, where the church of Philadelphia has promised to be removed from the very time of the tribulation. God hath not appointed, and the not there is very emphatic by its position in the Greek grammar. And of course, wrath is used here in its eschatological sense. The day of the Lord, the day of wrath. We are in contrast, that obtains salvation. That's an all-inclusive term with three tenses, past, present, and future. Here, again, it's in contrast to the eschatological wrath of God that's mentioned in the first clause of that sentence. Remember the three tenses of salvation. There's a past tense, separation from the penalty of sin. The present tense is a separation from the power of sin. And the future tense, separation from the very presence of sin. That first one is called justification. It's a done deal. Jesus did it all. It's completed. It's finished. Your sin was already dealt with back there on a cross. You can't add to that. He did it all. The present tense is called sanctification. If you're an unbeliever, you're in bondage to sin. If you're, not a, if you're a believer, you are no longer in bondage. You have the power to overcome it if you'll avail yourself of it. Because the, the Holy Spirit is available to you. But that's a work in progress. You don't do it overnight. The moment after you accepted Christ, you're justified. Paid in full. Done deal. To tell us die. You haven't changed yet. That's a lifetime challenge to, do, to, to grow in grace and knowledge of Him. But the future tense is separation from the very presence of sin, and that occurs after in your resurrection body and so forth. Justification, sanctification, glorification, all three of those are past, present, and future tenses of salvation. I emphasize this so often because I've discovered how much confusion evaporates when you understand the different uses of the word salvation, because it can be used collectively or individually. That's why we prefer to use the specific terms. It'll avoid confusion. The translation of the church, the rapture of the church, the beginning of the day of the Lord, assures that the believers will not have a part in the coming great tribulation when God's wrath falls upon a Christ-rejecting world. The divine calling necessitates a human response. Now there are some teachers, good scholars of the past, 
that talk about a partial rapture. We reject that for a number of reasons. That was their way of trying to reconcile something they couldn't unravel. Partial rapture? I, if so, I haven't found anyone who's qualified to go. Yeah. Show me the guy that didn't get raptured. I'll show you any of us. We're not qualified either, but for our position in Christ in the first place. Remember righteous Lot in 2 Peter 2. He's called righteous. He was living in, in Sodom, but he is called in the New Testament as righteous, nevertheless. Yet he was removed, not as a favor to him, as a prerequisite to the angels getting the job done. People miss that. Let's read it carefully, noting verse 22 in Genesis 19. Christ, who died for us, that whether we, make or, or whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. It's interesting to really notice this. In most of Paul's letters, he never misses a chance to expound on the significance of Christ's death. He, pa- he mentions it here in passing. He doesn't expand on it. Now, that's illuminating for a particular reason. The, the significance of Christ's death is not discussed in the Thessalonian epistles. It demonstrates that this particular doctrine was not questioned at Thessalonica. It was in Galatians and Romans. And in fact, Romans is the definitive treatment of that whole issue. It's the definitive statement of the gospel, according to Paul. But it's interesting that it's it's noticeably absent in this first letter because it wasn't an issue among those, interestingly enough. And this this was at the heart of apostolic preaching at Corinth. See, in Corinth, it was a different situation altogether. And and it was at Corinth that he's writing this letter to the Thessalonians. He didn't have to bring it up to Thessalonians. He dealt with it in in Corinth. Wherefore, comfort yourselves together and edify one another, even also as, as also ye do. Wherefore, that's an important word. That connects this, what now comes, derives from all the foregoing. Because of what we just finished reading, there's a whole bunch of conclusions he's going to have here. What about the Ten Commandments? Do you keep, are you required to keep the Ten Commandments? I've got bad news for you. You've got 22 just here in this chapter. Okay? So we're not, under, no, we're not under the law in that sense, but we do have commands by Christ to obey His commandments. What are His commandments? Well, I'm going to show you just 22 right here, and, I, and, and you might divide them a little differently. This is, I, just take, I picked this particular parsing of them by J. Vernon McGee to make really the point that there's, there's a lot of commandments that we're committed to. Well, let's number them as we go. One is comfort yourselves together. The second one is edify one another, even also you do. Edify, to build up, encourage. From the very founding of Koinia House, we've always felt that we were not an evangelistic ministry. A lot of people lead people to the Lord. That's great. We don't, we don't shun that. That's great. But our primary focus, once you've accepted the Lord, then what? Our main burden that we've had for decade, many decades now is the biblical illiteracy in the pulpits as well as among the believers. Believers mean well. They accept Christ, but where do they get taught? And that's what we are trying to, in our clumsy way, do a modest response to that. And edify, not only with our theology and our hope, but with the mainspring of our Christian life and testimony. That's the most important sermon Paul makes is his life, not his writings. We're not to leave it to an elite of professional comforters or counselors. Who's supposed to be the comforting and counseling? You people are. Not your pastors. You are. You are to be a Barnabas. You are to be an encourager and so forth. And Paul continues, and we beseech you, brethren, to know them which labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. Again, he's talking brethren. 
Delphio, brothers, we belong to the family. See, these are family terms. We noticed the, the mother, father, brother thing in the earlier chapters. Well, that's still echoing here. But he, here's his third commandment. No, recognize, esteem them. The solicitor's tone indicates that the writers were aware that difficulties did exist regarding the subjects now being dealt with, as they do with ourselves here. These are issues. We need to embrace them. And to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake, and be at peace among yourselves. Esteem them very highly, and be at peace among yourselves. Here's a couple more. We're at five already. No church could grow spiritually without its members being at peace among themselves. Now he gives you a fistful here in verse 14. Now we exhort you, brethren, there's that brethren again, warn them that are unruly, comfort the feeble-minded, support the weak, and be patient to all men. So you warn them that are disorderly. That's a military term for someone who is unruly, denoting one who's neglecting duties, falling into careless habits, and so forth. It's a military term. Comfort the faint-hearted. That's an unfortunate translation, feeble-minded. What it really, the word in the Greek really means small-souled. Small-souled. Faint-hearted captures in the English, it gets a little closer to what he had in mind there. And support the weak and be patient toward all men. Wow. Now we got, we're already at nine. <laughs> See that none render evil for evil unto any man, but ever follow that which is good both among yourselves and to all men. So that's number 10, ever follow that which is good, that's number 11. And there's three different alternative philosophies, you know, to do, to do good to everyone or do good to those that do bad to you and to do bad to those that are good to you. You, you, can, you can make your own little parody, but what he's saying here, you should be, do good and suffer evil, is what he's saying. Now here is, believe it or not, the shortest verse in the Bible, rejoice evermore. And that you say, well, I thought Jesus wept was the shortest book. In the, uh, I got some nods there already. In John eleven thirty five, it turns out those are actually three Greek words. These here, it's only two Greek words that are even smaller. So you get into a little uh, debate with some of your Bible study, you know, uh, weekly Bible, get, uh, Bible study groups. First Thessalonians five sixteen is the shortest verse in the Greek in the Bible, contrary to the common wisdom. Anyway. Rejoicing, living in the will of God, trusting the Lord. It's that simple. That's in contrast, though, with the sin of murmuring. Boy, you read Exodus, Deuteronomy, Numbers, all those that are just full of murmuring, 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 murmuring. We had someone come out, a, a tradesman came out to fix a repair at our house. And he did an acceptable job, but all the time he was there, he's grumbling. Sort of wondered, gee, you know, if something goes wrong, are we going to hire him back? He did an acceptable job, didn't do anything wrong with the job. But sure be nice to have somebody come that isn't grumbling from start to finish. You know what I'm saying? Murmuring. Interesting. Remember the letter to Ephesus, the first of the seven letters, seven churches. They lost their first love. They were fabulous about doctrine. They tried them that say they're apostles and are not. Doctrinally, they were right on. But I have a few things against you, Jesus says. That you've lost your first love, that joy. And that's what, that's what David praise in his, in his psalm of repentance about Bathsheba in Psalm 51. Restore unto me the joy of my salvation. Boy, we need to cling to that. Word evermore there is an interesting word. 
It's a favorite of Paul. He uses it many times, but I was quite no, I couldn't help but notice it's 27 times in Paul's letters and 15 other times in the New Testament. 15 plus 27 is 42. It's a multiple of seven exactly. And remembering, that's echoes of Pauline, if you will. I think that's kind of interesting. Paradox of joy amid suffering is a major theme all through the scriptures. The Philippian letter is a decant on this very theme. Christian sadness, depression, is always a mistrust of God's power, providence, and forgiveness. If you're depressed or sadness, that's a form of denying God's attributes. Do you trust Him? Pray without ceasing. Wow. Pray without ceasing. Now we're in the 13th command, by the way, for those that have been counting. It's an adverb, constantly recurring, maintaining times of prayer. Daniel prayed three times a day, and he was a very busy administrator. Third ruler in the kingdom for a while. Notice that Paul, in his letters, constantly is interjecting prayers. Each congregation should accept the responsibility to engage in serious intercession. That's what Dan called us for this, when we started here this evening, to intercede for the KI students that are meeting this very night across the country. Prayers are not limited by time or place. If you're not in the right place to pray, you are not in the right place. In everything, give thanks. It doesn't say for everything. It says in everything, give thanks. Big difference, isn't it? Think about it a moment. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. In everything, give thanks. That's in, not for. In whatever you're in, give thanks. God has a purpose in it. If it seems adverse to you, pray that your lessons not be wasted. God's training you for some reason. And there's no simpler recipe for a, Christian, for a happier Christian experience than to, in everything, give thanks. Not just when you feel like it. This may be what my wife likes to call a contrary to feeling choice. She's written a trilogy of books on this subject, the, the mainstay being the way of agape. Faith choices. You choose by what, the, what you know God's will is, not what you feel like. In the confidence that God will realign your feelings to conform to that feeling. But you make the choice first. Guided by the Holy Spirit. Guide, guided by the Word of God. All of us quote Romans 8.38. For we know that all things work together for good to them that love God. For everybody, no. No, no, no. For them that love God and who are the called according to His purpose. Ooh, what are the most important words in that entire verse? The first three. We don't suspect. We don't hope. We don't believe. No, we know that all things work together for good. Whole different flavor, isn't it? Embrace it. Quench not the spirit. Well, we're now to command number 15. The word there for quench is actually the word for putting out a fire, extinguishing. Do not put, the spirits, put out the spirit's fire is what it's saying. Quenching is just saying no to God, God the Holy Spirit. Imagine it as a flame, tongues of fire as it was in Acts 2. John the Baptist spoke of him baptizing by fire, remember? In Ephesians 4.30, Paul tells us, grieve not the Holy Spirit. I love that because it tells you two things. It tells you that the Holy Spirit isn't a force, it's a person. You can't grieve someone who doesn't love you. We all know the, the Son loves us. He went to the cross for us. We know the Father loves us because He allowed His Son, can you imagine, to go to the cross for us and all that entailed. 
But the Holy Spirit loves us too. We don't think of it that way sometimes because we think of him impersonally somehow because he never testifies of himself. And yet, he's a person. We're told not to grieve him. You can't grieve someone who doesn't love you. The Holy Spirit is there to teach us, to guide us, to direct us, to rebuke us, to show us the way to unfold the Scriptures, to give us joy and peace and love, and to transform our lives, wow, and our character and our experience. Our lives, our character, and our experience. He's got a big job. Despise not prophesying. This is command number 16. Be ready to recognize the messages of God when His servants speak. And we're going to apply that in the next verse forthcoming. Prove all things, hold fast to that which is good. This is the, the emblem of the firefighters for Christ. They already took that, so that's why I took Acts 17.11 for our emblem, if you will. Same idea, really. Prove all things. Just like the Bereans, we use Acts 17.11. There are others that use 1 Thessalonians 5.21. And this is a favorite of Paul anyway. He says it 17 times of the 23 occurrences in the New Testament. Prove all things, and then also, once you've done that, hold fast to that which is good. That's part two of that, in a sense. Abstain from all appearance of evil. Abstain from every form of evil. And that doesn't denote assemblage opposed to reality. It's a sort kind of, any kind of species, any kind. And the very God of peace sanctify you, and oh, here is a dandy verse. This verse is pregnant with insights. And the very God of peace sanctify you wholly. And I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, the word sanctify, you're pretty familiar with, set apart. That's all it means to be set apart, to consecrate. It does not mean the absolute eradication of all inbred sin. Don't get carried away with some of those misunderstandings. And uh, there's not one scripture that treats it from that standpoint. We're going to deal with this topic in depth when we get to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of 1 Thessalonians. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. You can also call us on 1-800-K-HOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, please visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.